You're listening to audio from Plank Grove Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankgroveharvest.org. Okay, so to continue from last week, last week was Pentecost. And uh, so I want to go, I want to read you one last verse that we didn't get to beat up very much, and then we'll get into to the foundation, Christ being the foundation. Of course, the Old Testament, the foundation is the law. The law has always been the foundation, but Christ is the foundation on the foundation. How about that? So go to Exodus 20, and let's look at just 18, 19, and 20. We'll read it, and I'll give you one little word on that, and we'll go forward from there. So we learned that, that in Pentecost, in the Old Testament Feast of Shavuot, that it was the giving of the law, that the law was given. And if we recall, if you recall, I hope you do, from one week ago, I hope you can remember that far back, uh, that, that the law was given by God's voice. Moses doesn't bring the Ten Commandments down on the tablet initially. He gathers all the people as the mediator. They stand before the mountain, and it says that God speaks. And God spoke all these words, saying, 20 verse 1, and so when God gets done giving the Ten Commandments, the people hear it, and they're in such awe, and it says in the thunderings, we read it, we talked about all that last night, or last week, but now all the people, verse 18, witness the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking, and when the people saw it, they trembled, and they stood afar off. They didn't come near to God, they moved away from God. And they said to Moses, you speak with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. So as time passes, a tragic thing happens. The people ask that here's God's willing to speak with them individually. I want you to think about this with yourself. God's willing to speak with you individually. Did you know that? Not every, these poor people here, they don't have a pastor. They don't even have a person that's more trained in the word necessarily, although Juan has read the Bible. It's in Quechua. For him to go from Quechua to Spanish is like from you to go to English to Spanish if you don't speak Spanish or English to, you know, whatever, Sardinian. You just don't speak it. So he can speak it all he wants, but they can't hear it. They can't comprehend. God speaking to them personally in every language, the witnessing, the thunderings, the, every language of mankind on the earth, the 70 languages it's spoken in is what the thunderings is supposedly to be. All men could have heard the Ten Commandments in their own language at that moment. And from God himself, from his lips himself. And yet they say, Moses, you speak with us and we'll hear. So what happens is, so Moses begins to speak to them over time, over time. And what happens is, over time, they get less and less inclined to the voice of God, more inclined to the voice of Moses. And in time, they get less and less inclined to the voice of Moses and more and more inclined to their own voice. And so what happens, we, we, uh, we, so at first we think best to hear from God himself. When we're first newly saved, man, if I could just hear from God, you know, reading the word, read the book of Acts, how come I can't do all these things and heal people and speak in tongues and whatever? You know, we want all these things. We want all these spiritual gifts. We want it all poured out on us. And in time, we find a pastor or someone else that speaks. And it seems to be that they hear the voice of God better than, than I hear it myself. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go listen to this guy, this Moses guy, or his semblance thereof, me, today, Dale. I'm going to go listen to Dale, and he'll tell me what God has to say. This is the, this is the failure of the church. 
This is the increase of the Catholic Church. And ultimately, the Catholic Church says, we'll tell you what's in the book. You don't even need the book. We'll just tell you what's in the book. The Israelites had the same problem. The Reformed Church, that's why, that's why the printing press in Germany back in the day was such a big deal. And a lot of people were like, don't you dare print the Bible. And they started going after them, right? Then they started printing in Latin, and they were like, whoa, whoa, you're just getting crazy now. And then we're going to print it in English. And they started killing people for printing the Bible where the common man, the Latin Vulgate, the vulgar, the low down and dirty could read it. It was in their own language. It was vulgar. It was in the common language of the people so they could hear from God again. Oh, this took the power away from the priesthood. They can hear directly from God. What do we need? What do we need Jed for? What do we need Dave for? What do we need Dale for? We can hear from God. You can hear from God yourself. You can, through His Word, through prayer, meditation, fasting, speaking, serving, you can have His direct influence on you. But in general, we're like, well, I'll let Dale read the Word. I'll let Jed read the Word, Dave, whoever. And I'll listen to him, and he'll tell me what God says. Well, what happens is Dale's going to tell you something that God said, and you're going to be like, well, I don't agree with that. That hurts my feelings. We, the, the little um, devotional for this week, it covers the word slave. Dulos. D-U-O-L-O-S. Dulos. From the Greek. So the, so the guys back in the day, they're translating the New Testament. They don't like the word slave. It means slave. It means slave every time. Slave. Slave's a bad word. Even in England back in 1611, it was a bad word. No, who wants to be a slave? We'll call it servant. Servant's better than slave, right? Because if I'm a servant, I don't feel like serving today. I just won't serve. But a slave, slave has no choice, right? The slave does what the master says. The master says, do this. The slave does it. So actually chapter 21 of Exodus talks about the willing slave and being a willing slave. That aside. So eventually people, so Dale gives them a word and they hear it and they say, well, I don't like that word. So now I'm not really questioning God. I'm questioning the, the guy between me and God. So I have every right to question him. He's just, he's just Moses. He's not God. He's Moses. And it becomes weaker and weaker. We question the hearing of the pastor, we question the hearing of the mediator because we no longer can hear from ourselves. Our hearing, it says, becomes dull. It happens to us. It happens to you. It happens to me. And what we need to do, just like the, it's amazing what the scripture was, to, or what the little thing was today, we need to return so that we can hear from God personally. What sort of redeemer shall bring us back to God? That was the question today, was it not? What's that, what sort of redeemer? So anyway, so we're going to talk about the Redeemer today. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 1. We'll read verse 1, 18 through, uh, we'll read 1, 18 through 21, and then 2, verse 2, and then we'll go forward from there. So what we want to talk about today is what is the foundation? And what is your foundation? What is it built on? 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 it says, for the message of the cross, well, let's wait for you. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. I'll wait for you to get there. Uh, page, <laughs> I always like that one. Page 1311 in my Bible. <laughs> it might be different in your. Okay, 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God, for it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. 
Where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. 2 verse 2. It says, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So how can something... Everybody in here believe that there was a cross? It's, you're free to raise your hand and say no. That there was a Christ? That there was a Messiah? How, what's a, what's a, give me one proof that's common, everyday proof you can guarantee, guarantee money on today that everybody knows that at one point in history there was Jesus Christ. How does everyone know throughout the world? How do we know? It's the way we gave time. What's today? 2021, right? Approximately 2,021 years since what? Something happened that all of time has been changed to be measured by. Right? So there's a proof. This young man that was here last week, he's like, well, man, Christ, we don't even know if he was here. Yeah, we do. Why is it 221 today or 2021? How come it's not, you know, 1722 or 5271? How come it's not something else? The Jews measure time from creation. I don't know if you know that. They're in year like 5,800 and something. They measure it from the last measured age of, the, of Adam. So that's how they measure time. But for a majority of the world, they measure time from the pivot point of Christ in history. So we got an absolute proof that something happened. He's testified to that he was here. There's other writings besides the Bible. Oh, what's his name? Not... Uh, Give me the name there. Starts with an A. Anyway, big writer. Joseph of, uh, no. No, no. Uh, he was a Greek writer. Who? Josephus. Josephus. You got writers like Josephus and other men of that area very close, one, two generations away from Christ, that they were still talking to witnesses that had seen him. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 6 or so, that he came born of a virgin, lived a sinless life. This I received and I give unto you that Jesus, this Jesus, who came, lived a sinless life, born of a virgin, who you crucified, died, was buried, resurrected on the third day, and sits today at the right hand of the Father, attested to by these witnesses, attested to by these witnesses, and then it says by at least 500 witnesses, other witnesses. 1 Corinthians 15. That's a good one to put in your... You don't have to memorize the whole verse. Just memorize where it's at. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 6. And it's the true gospel. It's the gospel in the truest, most purest form. This Jesus, born of a virgin, lived sinlessly, died unfairly, raised again, 500 witnesses. That's the key point. People saw it. If 500 witnesses saw a car wreck out here, you could pretty well attest that there was a car wreck. 500 witnesses at least, plus the disciples and so on, saw Jesus in the flesh, saw him eat, saw him walk around, saw him ascended. They saw him. So it would be foolish, it says, to say that this didn't happen. This would be foolish to say this, but people say this. A guy said that last week. I don't, he came up and talked to me afterwards. It's only foolishness, though, to those who desire not to follow him. When it comes right down to it, I asked the guy, I said, because you know in your heart that, that there is a God. I mean, you can look at creation, and I went through some creation things with him, and I said, and prove that there's a God. Nothing from chaos comes order, nothing. 
And I said, look at the order out there. And I was like, you know there's a God, and his eyes got real big. I said, but there's some in your life you don't want to give up. And he's like, well, you're trying to use the Bible to throw me off. I said, I can use the Bible. I talked about a tree. <laughs> because of the orderliness of a tree, I can attest that there's a God, a creator, a designer that made the tree or made you or made your eyeball work or your tongue taste or your nose sniff or your lungs breathe without you thinking about it or your heart pump without you thinking about it or your fingernails grow without you thinking about it. That doesn't happen by chance. Anyway, he becomes a fool because he rejects it outright because he does not want to change. So, so today, here's a couple things to catch. Number one, that there is a God. And number two, he sent his son into the world to save any who would believe in his name. And if that's the case, then I want us to have a better point of foundational knowledge of who Christ is, what he does, and how do we build on that. So go to 1 Corinthians 3. We're going to pretty much be in 1 Corinthians the whole time there. Paul, in talking to the Corinthians, how, why is it called Corinthians? We know this. I hope you know this. Why is it called Corinthians? Who is he talking to? People from Corinth. Right, Corinthians. Like we're Crossvillians. They're Corinthians. So, um, so he's talking to these people from Corinth, and these people are somewhat ignorant and, and very worldly. I mean, Corinth is like, it's, it's New Orleans slash Vegas. Very sexual, a lot of idolatry, a lot of drunkenness, and, um, and it's, a, it's a port. So you got all these sailors coming in. You know what happens when sailors come to town, don't we, Doc? So we know that it gets kind of wild, right? It's, it's a wild place. It's where they had the Olympics. They had a bunch of jazz going on there. And you bring all those people in. Um, they said the last Olympics that came to the United States, over 25,000 prostitutes were brought in. So if the Olympics are there, we got... Other things going on there. <laughs> I'm glad that made you laugh, Vince. Old Vince. Mine like a steel trap, that feller. So, so, I, so Paul's talking to these people, and he's trying to make an orderly picture of what happens once you believe. What is your life supposed to look like? How's it supposed to change? And he really is the foundation. Christ is the foundation, for sure. But Paul's kind of the foundation of the church, kind of organizing the church amongst the different nations that he goes to. And so he's trying to point people to the foundation which is Christ and develop the church on the foundation which is Christ. So look at 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 17. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God which is given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds upon it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through the fire." Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. That's what you are. That's a big idea. There's no other foundation that anyone can lay than has already been laid, and that's the finished work of Christ on the cross. No other foundation can be laid than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So, Paul is outlining to the people that whatever Jesus accomplished 
he did it in order to save mankind and that they needed this kind of base structure in order to develop the body of Christ, the church, the people of Christ. They need to be developed on this foundation, which is Christ. And Jesus, he taught his disciples that he would be crucified, and they couldn't grasp it. They're like, this, he's just a guy walking around. Why would he do that? Anyway, and he goes through this process with them, and they have no way of wrapping their mind around what's going on. Even at the point of his death, they go away from Christ and say, well, that's it. And he told them that even if they kill me, I'll be raised again in three days. Don't worry. It'll be okay. Then once they, he was raised, they see him alive. They still are like, what's going on? And then they see him ascended. It's only after the ascension of Christ, which is, so he's resurrected, and then about 40 days later, he ascends. He goes up into heaven. He walks around with them for about 40 days, gives them the last little rules and regulations. This is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to act. And then be in, be in Jerusalem for this day of Pentecost. I want you to be there because the Spirit's going to come down. The Feast of Shavuot is going to come down, and all the same signs that you saw at the Mount Sinai back in the day is going to happen again. We're going to see the thunderings and the languages and the fire and all those things. It's going to happen again. Be there. Be square. And so after that, only then when the Holy Spirit comes do they have a clarity of what he was talking about. It took till after his ascension before they really understood. Now Peter can speak freely He's like, oh, God, I can't believe I couldn't get this before. Feed my sheep, whatever. What was he talking about? I got it now. He's got it now. Now he can go and preach the gospel, right? Now he, can, he understands the big picture. And Paul, same thing. Paul, more developmental of the church of the Gentiles, which is us. But, but Peter, both uh, touching Gentiles and Jews, um, he now has a full understanding of what's going on. So they're telling, Paul is in this particular case, all who would hear that Jesus' death on the cross is foundational to the birth of those of the kingdom of God, the birth of the church that's going to grow and, and, and be what God had designed for his people. And what he really points out is that anything short of 100% reliance on the Messiah's death on the cross for salvation is not enough. Anything else will not be enough. It's got to be 100% of, of faith in Christ for your salvation. Anything else causes separation from God in eternity. Christ or separation. So, so let's look at the foundation. I pray that you are here today. You've already confessed with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. It says you will be saved. I pray that you've already done that. If not, today's the day. Or if you have a weakness in that, because many of us struggle with that assurance of salvation Man, there's all kind of scripture in that we can help you with even in that. We really struggle with that assurance of salvation because your mind goes through that process of, well, what about the time I did this and I was with so-and-so and I did so-and-so and I thought so-and-so. And it makes us question our salvation. We'll talk about that for just a second, but the, the point is, is that if you've accepted Christ and you're walking in Christ, you're walking in the Spirit, you're saved. If your desire is to walk in the Spirit, if you're convicted in your spirit when you sin, you're saved. An unsaved person is not concerned when he's not walking in the Spirit. An unsaved person is not concerned when he commits sin. Only a saved person is. So when you find these things crop up in your life and it causes you grief in your spirit, uh, you're saved. Because an unsaved person would not care about that. So there's a, a little tidbit for you. Maybe that helps you. But So as a believer, it says that God gives us some things. Jay, could you turn the Turn that over onto AC or something. Put, you have to flip down on that mode thing. 
I'm sorry. I mean, if you're nice and comfortable down there, I promise you, right here, it's like 87. And if I fall over right here, uh, you just better get enough people that can lift 245, because that's about what I weigh. So drag me to the air. Uh, so um, let's see, where was we? I was just thinking, see, I got a little heady there. I'm going to keel over off the thing there. So for the believer, God gives us a number of materials to build with. Verse 12. We'll start back at 11. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. I'm, if I'm reading this just exactly as it's written, I'm not trying to read anything into it, but it seems to me that you have options in how you would build on the foundation, which is Christ. You have options here. You have the option of gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble. 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 So, it, so we can combine these elements to build this temple, and let's think about where they are. So if we were going to build with gold, silver, and precious stones, is that something I can just go out the door and then scoop up a big shovel full in the parking lot? Or does that take labor? Does that take effort and work? to develop that kind of building on this foundation. As far as wood, hand, stubble, stubble any, any person, we could go out there and gather up all we wanted. There's all kinds of structures made in Peru of adobe. It's just dirt mixed with straw, and then they put more straw on the roof. Anyone can build out of that. Remember the three little pigs? But there's one, that, one that's durable, and there's one that's not. And that's the picture here. If anyone builds with the foundation of gold, silver, precious stones... So the, the resources that take more time, knowledge, effort, and skill are much more valuable than those that have no time, effort, or skill to pick up. Any two-year-old child could go pick up the other. Nothing shall be laid on the foundation except what the foundation can bear. Things that are at peace with the foundation. If we put, if we put one, um, if you're plumbing, and you have a, a, a piece of galvanized pipe and you screw copper to it, you end up with this thing called dielectric something. I can't remember what it's called. What's the word there, Lynn? It's called dielectric. It's an issue. But what happens is when your water's running through your water line, you got one kind of metal and it's running into another, you end up with current right there and it becomes like a welding spot. And that's why you get leaks on your water heater when you got your black pipe and then you got a piece of copper screwed on there. So you put a thing called a dielectric coupler in there as a little piece of plastic so that you can have these two components that shouldn't touch each other insulated from one another. The way this foundation works is we don't want to put things that are going to contradict the foundation of Christ. And this comes down to doctrinal things. So what people tend to do is they accept Christ and they begin to read the Word. And they're like, well, the Word is really hard to read. So I'm going to read this book that Dave wrote. And I'm going to let Dave tell me. Dave's our only writer, so we've got to pick on him. But we're going to read this book that Dave wrote. And then I'm going to take what Dave says and assume that it's correct. But really what I've done is I've passed up on gold, not that your book's not gold, Dave, that's solid action right there, man. And I've, I've taken dirt instead. I've taken stubble instead. It takes effort to read God's word and develop that thinking in my mind. It doesn't take effort to read what another man wrote about what God's word says. Do you see what I'm saying? That's why I think we've got to be very careful. I'm a, I like my, my favorite devotion. I've told you, I strongly encourage, if you're going to read a devotional, read this one, Charles Spurgeon's Morning and Evening. That's the one. Oswald Chambers, he's down there about three levels down in my opinion. Charles Spurgeon, Morning and Evening. The guy was deep 
He was serious, and he will tell you in the introduction of the book, if you're using this for your doctrine rather than God's word, throw it away. That's what his introduction says, essentially. So to read something like that and bring it alongside God's word, that's good. To read that and not God's word, that's wood, hay, and stubble. It's going to make for a weak believer. So read the word and develop yourself in the word. Like I said, the wood, hay, and stubble can be found anywhere. All you got to do is pick it up. And it's easy to see the result. It says that these all will be tested by fire. Each one's work will become clear, verse 13, for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire, tested by fire. The fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, he'll receive a reward. If his work is burned, he'll suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet is so through the fire. It's easy to see the result of fire on these things. We know that gold, I hope you know, that gold, that's how you purify gold is with fire. It becomes a liquid state, the slag goes to the top, you skim off the slag, and you got pure and pure and pure gold. Silver, the same thing. And I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, most jewels, most uh, jewels like emeralds or rubies and whatever, if they got a craze in them, like a little, a little crack that's inside, the way they can remove the flaw, how they remove the flaw, anybody know? Heat. They heat it up, and the flaw goes away. They're not as valuable as ones that are naturally without a flaw, but that's how they get. Otherwise, you couldn't buy perfect rubies and things like that because most of those precious stones have flaws in them, just like you. And what gets the flaw to go away? Heat and pressure. That's how God tests us, with heat and pressure. And that's how he removes flaw. That's how the diamond's made from the coal, heat and pressure. If you want to make a commercial diamond, heat and pressure. That's how industrial diamond, that's how you do it, heat and pressure. So these flaws that are in us are removed or exposed by heat and pressure. We don't like those things, but I'm telling you, reading a book about what the Bible says is not going to hang in there with you like reading the Bible and seeing what the Bible says. You need the pure milk of the Word to develop you as a believer. When uh, uh, Christians tend to build with these cheap, accessible things rather than the things that require so much effort, gold, silver, and precious stones. We do it because it's faster, it's easier, and because we're lazy. The thing is, though, when hard times come, you can't give away stubble, but you can always use gold to trade with. So what's your, what's your foundation? What are you building on the foundation with? Because hard times are going to come. This was from uh, Matthew Henry. You shall not build on that good foundation, that which will not stand the test. When the day of trial comes, it will be exposed in weakness in the believer. You're going to be tested. Bad things happen. They happen to good people all the time. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. The only way you stand is if you've built properly on the foundation that's there. You've got the connection between you and the Messiah that's solid. If the foundation is gold, I can't build with dirt on top of it. If the foundation's gold and I'm poured out as liquid gold on the foundation, I'm going to stick. Silver sticks to gold, by the way. They use it to harden gold. So the fire reveals what we're made of. Each one's work will be made clear, for the day will declare it. Matthew 7, 26 and 27, that's that. The foolish man builds his house upon the sand, and when the waves come in and crashes, it collapses. And the wise man builds his house upon the rock, and the wave came and the storm came. The storm's coming. Jesus doesn't give them a pass like, if you build on the rock, then you'll never have a... No, he says, when the storm comes, you're going to have the storm. Make sure you're connected to the rock. Make sure you've got some J-bolts in there. Make sure you're tied to it. 
And I thought this was interesting too. The fire reveals what they're made of. It says if anyone, verse 15, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through the fire. So, so to give you hope, because I just know what I am myself, and so I assume you're the same because we're all people, and you may have a different flavor on it, but I promise you've gone through the same thought processes, actions, and whatever, deceitfulness of sin that's in your mind that you dwell on. But all of us have sinned. All of us have sinned after salvation. Many of us have questioned our salvation because of sin. But the reality is, it doesn't say here that you lose your salvation or your separation from God. It just says that your weak, um, your weak works are exposed. It says that you're still saved. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through the fire. So there's the ultimate entrance into heaven but you're entering heaven with nothing to show for your labor if you go without things in this life and build a weak foundation on christ but you've withheld the joys and pleasures of life you've not enjoyed life you've put a bunch of legalism on yourself or you've been so so free and loose with your life as a saved person that you've not brought others to christ there's going to be shame involved when you meet your maker on that day and you stand before him and you're exposed for your entire life being wood, hay, and stubble instead of gold, silver, and precious stones. There's just going to be some shame involved. It do, you don't lose your salvation. The salvation comes when you put your trust in Christ and he receives you as his own. His blood comes on you, purifies you. Now, as you begin to develop as a believer, develop with good things and not weak things. So, there is a foundation. It says, let's go to 1 Corinthians 9 there. I know I'm covering a lot, but man, there's a lot in this book. It's hard to get it all in one, one Sunday. 9, 24 through 27. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is tempered in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, for we are an imperishable, but we are an Im we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body, bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others I myself should become disqualified. How's he running? He's running like a gold plated runner runs. He's careful what he says with his mouth. He's careful in his actions. He's careful what he puts in his body. He's careful what he thinks about. He's careful what his eyes look like, look at. Why? Because he's going to be judged. Anytime you talk to an unbeliever, one of the first things they do is they go right to this point of God being this wrathful judge. And this picture of God as a judge, and we think of judges, the only judges we know are the judges we see, you know, Judge Judy or Judge Wapner or whatever the judge is, Warner down here. You know, we think of judges like that, like they have opinions. Their opinions are based on laws, but there's also some flexibility in there for them to give... Um, different sentences depending on how they see the situation, right? So we see judges as judgmental and not as God the judge is. God the judge is looking at these people running this race. He's looking at you running this race as a believer. And he's impartial in this point that he's watching you run the race and he's just, he's, so you know, you see the finish line, the photo finish line, he's watching the finish line and he's seeing how you finish. Did you finish in a way that was fair? I saw this one race recently, and this guy was behind by a, a full step, and he gets about a, 
a step and a half from the finish line, and he just dives and ends up passing. I mean, he gets all skinned up on the track, but he ends up passing the first-place runner. He dives across the line. He's going to do whatever it takes to win. I don't know if that's fair or not. But I'm saying God's a judge, as in he's judging how you finish. And I never really looked at that before, but the way this judgment right here is written is as a judge that's evaluating the finish line. This, this crown thing, we don't have to spend any time on that. It was a perishable crown. It was a thing of olive branches. It's like, yeah, hey, you won. You know, you show your buddies and it rots and shrivels up in three days and you throw it out in the yard and the goats eat it. But he's saying, if you're going to run a race and you're going to get a prize, get one that lasts. Get a gold crown. Get one that's worth having. It's appointed once for man to die and then the judgment. Every man stands before God to be judged. And, and we think about that part, but what he's saying is finish the race well. Finish well. Build well and finish well. He watches carefully to see if the runner crosses first in an illegal manner, and then he disperses the medal or crown for the winner. God gives every merciful chance to every single person up until the point of death for repentance because he's long-suffering. Um, in Romans, if you want to read that, I'm, we're, I don't want to go way far over on time today, but Romans 2, 5 through 12, if you're writing that down, that talks about his judgment. And in Romans 3, 23 through 26, I do want to read that because this demonstrates his restraint. He has every right to judge us as severely as he wants because he provided the sacrifice for us. And he says, accept the sacrifice. And we say, no, <laughs> do it my way. And he's like, accept the sacrifice. He's not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. He doesn't count time as you measure time. He measures time as he measures time. He's got all the time in the universe. He's the one that makes the time. 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, his long-suffering, his patience, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in, in Jesus. He's very restrained. If God gave us what we were due, we'd all be little crispy, burned-up piles of dust if he gave us what we were due. But instead, he's long-suffering. He's patient. Why is that? If there's a foundation, that means that there's something to be built on it, correct? And I looked at that. Go back to 1 Corinthians 3, because that's where we're going to finish up at. Um. If there's a foundation, there's something to be built on it, what's being built on it? It says it in two places. It says in verse 9, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. What's being built on the foundation? You are. Do you not know, verse 16, that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Who's the temple? Well, you are. So if you were going to have a temple, do you want an adobe temple or do you want a gold temple? Do you want Solomon's temple or do you want Herod's temple that was thrown up quickly and, and was quite slapdash and, and silly looking in comparison? It was so pitiful in comparison that the people that saw the second temple wept because it looked so terrible compared to the first, the ones that had seen the first. We are God's fellow workers. You're his field. You're the building. The temple, which is of God is holy, which temple you are. You're the one being built on the foundation. So every one of us is going to be presented before God's throne on that day 
and it's called about the judgment seat of Christ, which is a scary place to go, because I know what I am. And you're going to be presented one way or another there. Maybe Christ returns, maybe you die first. Uh, but either way, what are you going to be when you stand there? I'm just changing directions just a tiny bit, and we're coming back to this. Every picture I've ever seen of, of Jesus, and, and so back in the, uh, what's that era called? The uh, started with an R. I can't remember nothing today, man. Must have been, huh? Not the Reformation, but the, the, the Renaissance of the, man, God bless you, Doc. Thanks for coming today, man. That's right, man. God bless you, brother. Mind of Christ right there. Did you see that connection? The Renaissance. So you got all the little fat cherubs and all stuff. But all the people that they painted, whenever they painted Christ, they painted him very effeminate. I don't know if you realize it. You watch those, those all, and they got him hanging on the cross, little skinny bird arms, little feminine face, long, you know, flowing locks. Very little blood. Very clean. Or he's sitting with the lamb, a little kid. He got a little gentle face. Always like a just like the whitest white boy ever, and he would have been a very dark, uh, likely a dark person with dark hair, you know, at least olive-skinned, and they always got him as this, anyway, they, this, the best that man's imagination can come up with as a picture of who Christ is, is pretty, pretty lame. And I really believe that part of the reason we don't fear God is because we have in our mind what these pictures are of Christ, and we think, well, if he's like that, I mean, I mean I ain't, I'm not afraid of that guy. You know, I mean, he, he looks like a sissy. But he was and is the creative power behind all of creation, including you. Um, he speaks to Satan and Satan flees. He speaks to the rock and the water comes out. He speaks to the dead and they rise. He speaks to the king and he says, if I want to, I can speak to the angels and there'll be so many of them here so fast, you'll regret even thinking about talking to me the way you're talking to me right now. And yet he's long-suffering and merciful, and he doesn't do that. But when he comes back, it says he's bringing a sword. So we're going to see a different picture of Christ than this one of men's imagination of this little wimpy guy, this little sissy-looking figure. We're going to see a completely different one. And it says of him in Revelation 117, when John sees him, it says, and I saw him and I fell at his feet as a dead man. You know, little wimpy girly man, nobody falls on his, on his face as a dead man. Revelation 117. You don't do that. You're just like, whatever, man. But when he comes and he bears the sword and it describes him on the horse and John sees him the second time there at the end of Revelations, it's like, it's like he's overcome. I don't believe the way it seems, this is just Dale's opinion on this, I think he's a lot bigger than you think he is. I think he's like Shaquille O'Neal size. He's a big guy. He's big. He's not a little scrawny wimp. He's the king of kings. He's the lord of lords. He's the best warrior that ever was. He's got this sword of truth that's going to literally devour the nations. He will be to be feared. Hmm. Jesus, the foundation, we got to get the correct view of who the Messiah is, and it will change the way we build on the foundation if we get the correct view of who the Messiah is. If we see him as strong and durable and omniscient, omnipotent, immutable, as we see him as those things, that his, his, um, the composition of who he is is everlasting, the fact that his existence is before time began and will continue before, um, until beyond eternity. 
we'll have a, a completely different picture of him. I want to read you one thing from Revelation, Revelation chapter 4. So here's people that are in his presence. They're seeing him. They're there with him all the time. There's all different kind of animals and different things. 4 verse 2, I was in the spirit, John being there, and I see a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. He was red. So he's, this is the color of his person. He's, a, a, he's like an Indian, like American Indian, dark colored. Uh, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald, bright green. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on these thrones I saw 24 elders sitting there clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. This could be the original tribes of Judah, or I mean of, of Israel, along with the disciples. Could be, we're not sure exactly who this is. These are some important people, these elders, or these could be members of the heavenly host that also are part of his kingdom rule there. And it talks about the, the throne and how powerful it is. And it talks about these living creatures that are around. And so these are his created beings that are around him. And the only thing that they can say, they do not rest day or night, verse 8, and they say, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sit on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they, they exist and were created. And then it says of the scroll, who is worthy to open the scroll? And, the, and the, he looks around and he sees all these perfect angelic beings, John does, and he begins to weep and he's like, if all these perfect, completely righteous beings are not worthy to open the scroll, who can open the scroll? And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out in all the earth. And he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Even heaven was redeemed by Christ. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nations and made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was ten thousands times ten thousands and thousands of thousands myriads upon myriads the king james says saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power riches and wisdom strength and honor glory and blessing seven things and every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and there's in the sea and all that's in them i heard saying blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever and the four living creatures said amen and the 24 elders fell down on worst of him who lives forever and ever so there's the foundation are you building on that? When you think, when, when you get into sin, are you thinking about him judging you? When you get into sin, are you thinking about causing harm to him? Are you thinking about the little scrawny dude on the cross? Are you thinking about him? Where the most powerful created things in the universe bow down in fear and in, in, in honor 
of him. I don't think we can get in our minds, our minds are so finite, how great and awesome and powerful God is and how great and awesome and powerful his son is. His God is great and awesome and powerful. We see him sitting on the throne here and all these creatures giving him honor and so on. But when Christ comes on the scene, it's like, you know, the hero walking into the ring and the people just just screaming mad, just crazy excited to see him. Do you think of him like that? Because if you think of him like that, if you know Christ as this, I dare say that your life will be different as you build on the foundation now. Because you have to stand before this. You have to stand before Christ as this. The most righteous men ever to live, whoever these elders are, they fall down and they say, worthy, 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 and worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches, wisdom and strength, honor and glory and blessing. And what are you going to say when you meet the king? Because it says of John, who was a very righteous man, it says that he falls down as a dead man before this king right here. So is my, is my, is my view of Christ different from who Christ really is? Because I would say that it probably is. Because all we can do is get in our mind with those pictures that we've seen. But we're not reading his word. We're not building foundational doctrines on the foundation. The part that takes digging, the part that takes effort, the part that takes skill and knowledge, dedication. We're not putting that out to discover who this king of kings is. Is my, is my foundation established rightly? Am I building on the foundation of Christ with things precious or with wood, hay, and stubble? Or am I trying to mix the two? Is an hour here on Sunday and some Christian music during the week and then everything else is just a bunch of wood, hay, and stubble? Is that my life? Or is my life oriented to building with gold and silver and precious stones and with gold and silver and precious stones and rejecting the wood, hay, and stubble from my life so that I might not tarnish this temple that God has made me to be built on this foundation that he has established? If, I'm like, if my view of Christ is wrong, then I build wrongly. If my view of Christ is correct, and I recognize him for who he is, then I think in times of persecution I'll be able to stand. Father, this morning, as we come together, Lord, to hear your word and to pray and to seek your face, Lord, I am so grateful for your word that, that orients us to who you are. And I ask for your mercy, Lord, for us not recognizing who you are so often. And we, we speak words, and we speak words of you lightly. I hear people make jokes, even Christians, and they imply the name of Jesus or they imply your name. You know, Jesus wouldn't like that. And ha, 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 Lord, I, I ask for your mercy in that. We don't know. We don't understand how great you are and how powerful you are and how unworthy you are or how unworthy we are. Father, you alone are worthy. Jesus, you, the name above all names, the one slain before the foundation of the earth, you are the one that is spoken of. No greater love hath any man than this but to lay down his life for a friend, Lord. That's you. We claim it for ourselves, for these that have uh, you know, lost their lives in military service and things, but that was you. Lord, I am grateful for those who served, but I'm much grateful for the one who served in giving his entire life and all that he was. He was marred more than any man so that I could be saved, Lord. Father, so grateful that you died for me, Lord. I pray that the, the, the word of everyone in this place today would be that Jesus died for me. I pray that today as we 
you know, enjoy our time off and things like that, Lord, that our minds would be oriented correctly to who you are, Lord, and that our, that our time and every week, Lord, that 168 hours that you give us every week, that it wouldn't be five minutes here and there, Lord, but it would be dedicated time in the Word, dedicated time in prayer, dedicated time in serving others for your glory, Lord. Have mercy on us, Lord. We don't know. We just don't know. Lord, I pray that you reveal yourself to us more and more, more clearly every day. And I'm so grateful for this time, Lord, and for this place, for these that have come, Lord. I pray that our witness would be strong this week as we go out amongst the world and um, that you would go before us, Lord. I, pr pr I pray for the hearts of our county. I pray for the people in our government that's in control over us, Lord. I pray for our school board. I pray for our teachers that are influencing our children. I pray for our, our city leaders. I pray for our, our national government, Lord. I pray for the peace of Israel, the peace of Jerusalem, Lord. I know they have a new a new uh, president or whatever whose mind is not stayed on you. Lord, we, I pray that the people will come to their senses while there's still time, Lord, but we will see, we will see your glory in that place, Lord, when you put your foot on the Mount of Olives, Lord. So we look forward to that day. Father, have mercy on us. Thank you for your goodness to us, your care for us this far, Lord. I pray that we would rededicate ourselves to you today, Lord, and ask that you, uh, you care for us. Thank you again, Lord, for this blessing of this time together, this place, Lord. May your lampstand not be removed from us, Lord, when your Holy Spirit poured out on this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Well, God bless you all. I pray that you uh, take the time to read the Word. Go back and read that verse there in Revelation and dwell on that, Revelation 4 and 5, and kind of dwell on that. See what you're building with. God bless you all. Have a great holiday, and we'll see you very soon.